0: We invite you to turn your Bibles if you'd like to or your iPads. We're going to be in Matthew 27 this morning. We are in the last two Sundays of a study on the work of Jesus. So we spent a little over a year looking at the words of Jesus in Matthew 5-7 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we turned the page in January and we began to talk about the work of Jesus and the authority of Jesus because the folks who heard Jesus teach... That they came away with the impression that this is a guy who has authority that's different than anybody else. And so we ask the question is, did the life of Jesus, did the, the work of Jesus match up to that authority with which he taught? And we've seen over the last few months the authority and the work of Jesus in action. Last week we turned our attention to the cross. And we began to look at Jesus, although he seemed vulnerable, he seemed to be a victim. Uh, of, the, uh, of the abuse of others. He was in fact uh, working and using his authority on the cross on our behalf. And we looked at the first part of his experience last Sunday. We looked at the first three hours this morning. We're going to look at the second three hours that Jesus spent on the cross. Uh, I was talking to some friends a couple years ago who had a great family vacation planned and everything kind of went downhill quickly. The, the second day out on the road they were going to go to a a state fair in a state where they had not been before. So they were kind of finding their way there. In the morning, they woke up to go to the state fair. And uh, as the husband's telling me and the dad's telling me, he's like, we got a few miles down the road and I knew it was going to be a bad day because the car overheated. It's a new car. Go to a garage, find out that a hose had come loose. So we spent an hour and a half of them fixing the hose, getting that set as we're walking out to the car. I'm pulling up my phone to get directions and what do I do? I drop my phone and I break my phone and my wife's phone's battery dead so now we've got to try and find the state fair but I say I'm a guy how hard could it possibly be and of course I'm not going to stop and ask for directions. So several hours later they got to the uh, state fair and uh, the rest of the day went okay Till they got back in the car and headed back to the hotel and the kids have eaten a lot of candy and had a lot of good food, and, and then all three of them decided to give that back uh, to the family in the car as they were pulling into the parking lot of the hotel, but that was okay because the hotel lost their room reservation, so they had to spend the night in the car anyway. <laughs> all of that falls under the heading of just when you think it can't get worse, right? It does. If you were here last Sunday, or if, if you weren't here but maybe you caught us on the podcast, uh, you would think of Jesus' suffering, it just possibly, just can't possibly get any worse. The abuse that was heaped upon Jesus, the physical suffering that he endured, just not only from the beatings that he received from the Romans, but also the, the actual crucifixion itself, and we'll review that again in just a moment, you would think it can't get any worse. Uh, what we're going to see this morning in this passage is that it actually does. That the real work of Jesus began at the noon hour of the day and was not completed until 3 that afternoon. But the work that Jesus did for your salvation and for my salvation is what really transpired between God the Father and God the Son. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 27, uh, just six verses, verse 45 through 50. Hear the word of God. Now from the sixth hour, that's noon, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine. And put it on the reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the, the voices of our children as they led us in worship. As we were reminded that the Lord Jesus is the one to whom we sing Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes to save, who comes to redeem. Father, we thank you that as as we praised you, we remembered that your salvation is not just for this life. It's not just momentary or fleeting, but it is forever. It is for all of eternity. Father, we thank you for those promises this morning. Lord, so often we, uh, we reflect back and we think about and are grateful for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Lord, when we give it serious thought, we're overwhelmed that you would love someone like us. When we think about the things in our lives that, uh, things of which we're not proud, some things of which we're just flat out ashamed. Sometimes it's hard for us to get our minds around the fact that you love us and that you're compassionate with us and that you forgive us. But, Lord, we, when we focus on your grace, we are, we are thankful. We are prayerful that you would be continuing to change our lives. But, Father, as we focus this morning, as we did last week, on the means of that grace, on the, on, on the manner in which the price for our sins was, pray, was paid, we, we see a horrible, tragic scene. So, Lord, may we not dwell on this just for the the sensational aspect of Jesus' suffering, but rather may we see the the price that he endured in order that we could be saved, in order that we could sit here this morning as the redeemed people of God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, teach us that this morning. Uh, We pray for everyone in this room, Lord. There are, I'm sure, many here that believe in you, and I'm sure there's... There are some who are still wondering or questioning or just they're not sure where they stand spiritually. They're not sure about you. And, Father, I thank you that people would come and would explore these questions. And, Father, we pray that we wouldn't hear the words of man, what I have to say isn't important, but rather that we would hear your word, that you would teach us. Father, forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me be in the way of what you want to do this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me give you the sermon in a sentence, and it isn't going to do justice to what Jesus has done. One of the things that I've struggled with all week is trying to find the right words. Uh, I think there are passages of Scripture that kind of lend themselves to uh, preaching, and there are others that uh, sometimes just defy uh, our mindset and our ability to really, truly comprehend uh, the weight of the matter, and that's the case this morning. So while I think the sermon in a sentence is accurate, Uh, I I don't think it's enough, but at least will get us going. Jesus suffered God's wrath. That's what we're going to focus in on this morning. That wrath was against our sin while he hung on the cross, so justice could be met and you and I could be forgiven. Let me remind us for just a moment about the first three hours of the cross, and we looked at this in detail last week. It's on the website. If you weren't here, you weren't able to, to hear it, you can go back and listen to it. But we've concentrated last week on what uh, was paramount in the first three hours of Jesus' suffering, which was the physical suffering of Jesus and, and then followed by the emotional suffering of Jesus. But first, the physical suffering of Jesus. We're reminded that before Jesus ever got to the cross that he was beaten within an inch of his life. We looked at the, the thorn of crowns, the, the, uh, the spikes that were pressed into Jesus' head, and then the fact that the soldiers took a rod and beat that crown even further into Jesus' flesh. And all of that happened before Jesus ever got to the cross. And then there were spikes that were put in his hands and in his feet as he was hung on the cross, and as the cross is lifted up, and as it sinks into the kind of the post hole into the ground, all of Jesus' bones came out of joint. And he slowly suffocated to death, which is what the execution of the cross is all about. When you die on a cross you slowly suffocate to death because your weight is pushed forward and you have a hard time getting back, arching back, standing up because you, when you stand up you're putting all of that weight on a spike that's through your ankles and that pain is excruciating enough so you can only take that for a few seconds and you slump back down but then as you slump back down you can't breathe and so that only lasts for, for a few seconds then you have to go up and down so basically For upwards of several days, you can go up and down until you eventually suffocate. It's an awful, gruesome death. And the first three hours of Jesus' time on the cross, that part of the story is emphasized. The other part of the event that's emphasized is the emotional abuse that was heaped on Jesus. The suffering that he endured as he was mocked by the Roman soldiers. As they said, Hail, King of the Jews, as they spit on him and as they beat him. He was scorned by just people that were passing by the cross. Matthew's Gospel notes that people that weren't really even involved that day, people that weren't part of the the lynch mob, so to speak, who just happened to be passing by but knew something about Jesus, even they made fun of him, even they mocked him, and then gathered around the foot of the cross all day long were his enemies, were the people who wanted nothing more than to see him fail and to see him right where he was. I don't know if you've ever had somebody who really... Told you they didn't like you. Someone who told you they they really didn't think that uh, you were you were worth drawing breath on this planet. Probably all of us have a detractor someplace in our lives, uh, maybe an in-law or someone at our work that 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 doesn't quite understand how wonderful we are. Uh, but very few of us have true enemies in our lives, people that really actually down in, in the depths of their soul hate us with with a with a perfect hatred. And those people surrounded Jesus. All of his friends were gone. None of his buddies had, had stood by him. He was alone to face these people who just mocked him and derided him hour after hour. And yet, even in that suffering, and we didn't touch on this last week, but even in that amount of human suffering, Jesus was still able to focus. He was still able to, to think about what was happening around him, and he was even able to articulate several different ideas or several different thoughts as he hung on the cross. We're not going to take time to, to go into those this morning, but I'm going to mention them. As Jesus is placed upon the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We can spend a, a several sermons on the mercy and the grace of Jesus. Jesus isn't praying to the Father that he would offer blanket immunity to people for what they're doing, but rather that God would be patient and not come And destroy them in an instant. But that he would allow the cross to play out so that we could be forgiven. Later on, Jesus looks at his mother who's standing there by the cross. Because you know your mom never leaves you, right? No matter who you are, no matter how bad you are, mom is is still there for you. And here's Jesus' mother. and, And the one friend that actually did stick around, incognito, his disciple John is standing there. And Jesus takes care of his mom on the cross. He says, mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. In other words, John, I expect you to take care of my mom. The third thing that Jesus says on the cross is when he is in conversation with the thief who comes around to faith, the thief that begins by mocking Jesus but ends up putting trust in Jesus. And Jesus looks at him he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So even though the crucifixion is awful, and I'm not not downplaying the pain and the suffering at all, but even in those moments, Jesus was able to focus, and he was able to speak. But then we get to the second three hours of the cross. And then we get to what Matthew describes as darkness, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. It's interesting, and I actually learned this this week, I wasn't aware of it, that historians actually speak about this darkness. Now, it wasn't an eclipse of the sun, because the Passover happens during a full moon, and it's impossible to have an eclipse during a full moon. So there was something supernatural that was going on. There was something that was causing this darkness. But there is a, a, a Roman historian, uh, Felgon, who in uh, 136 A.D. speaks about this darkness, and he actually talks about it being recorded. And he says it became as night, the sixth hour of day, so that the stars even appeared. In the sky, and that Tertullian, who was a Christian. So so Falgon was just a, a historian, wasn't a person of faith, but Tertullian is a is a Christian and a bishop of Carthage. And some few years later, he also, in talking to some of his unbelieving friends, says the wonder of darkness is related in your own records and is preserved to this day. So some hundred and seventy-ish years later, the darkness of that a- afternoon is still something that's in the pages of recorded history, but what is actually going on? Well, when you look at Scripture and ask the question, what is represented by darkness, and in particular in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, but the examples I'm going to give you this morning in the Old Testament, darkness in Scripture means one of two things. It either connotes the idea of evil and or chaos of some kind, Or it shows the wrath of God. So let's talk about chaos for just a minute or evil. In Proverbs chapter 2, the author of Proverbs is, is warning and encouraging his children to listen carefully to him. He's offering them a lot of advice about life. If you read the book of Proverbs, and if you're a mom or a dad and you have little ones, you should start reading Proverbs now and you should read part of it every day. Some of the greatest and best parenting advice in the world is in the book of Proverbs. So one of the pieces of advice that that this dad gives to his son is, wisdom will protect you from men who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil. That's a, a short paraphrase of those verses. The notion of evil and darkness in the Old Testament go hand in hand. But it also can speak of God's wrath. And we read in later on, in Psalm 88, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Why? Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You get this almost this idea of a heavy blanket being laid upon him. And you overwhelm me with your waves. The psalmist is speaking of the, the emotion that he's feeling, knowing that his sin has separated him from God. And he, and he says, I'm in the dark places. I'm in in a place where I can't see because the wrath of God is upon me. And what we need to understand in the text we're looking at this morning is that we are on a collision course between evil and wrath. They're going to come together at the cross of Christ. And the first three hours, terrible though they were of human suffering, was not unlike any other victim of a crucifixion. Anybody that that died upon a cross, you could point to that person and say, well, Jesus didn't have it any worse than them, and you technically would be correct. Anybody who dies a slow, suffocating death on a cross goes through the same amount of pain and the same amount of anguish, but now something radically different is about to unfold. The Father is going to show up in all of his wrath in all of his righteous indignation against your sin and against my sin. And if we didn't think it could get worse for Jesus, it does. Because now the real suffering begins. What Jesus had experienced up to this moment, and I don't say this lightly, was nothing compared to what he was about to experience. And we see that Jesus is under the wrath of God. Now you have to ask and answer this question. We're going to try to do so in a timely manner this morning. Why did Jesus suffer God's wrath? Why was this different? Why wasn't Jesus' death on the cross, why wasn't the physical suffering, why wasn't the emotional abuse that he endured from at the hands of his enemies, why wasn't that enough? Why did we have to go down this road? Well, in order for us to understand this, and again, we'll try to be brief, you have to go back to the beginning. We've got to take ourselves back to the garden, and I'm not going to take time to read in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but you can read there in your own Bibles. And we need to remember the glory and the beauty and the majesty that was creation. That was the environment that our, that our first parents were given by God out of his love and out of his, his longing to have a, a, a perfect relationship with the men and the women that he created. With the, the men and women whom he breathed life into their lungs, he, he created a perfect world. He said, I've got a playground, you're not going to believe it. You know, we're getting ready to, to build a new building and one of the things that we're working on is having a good playground for our kids. I want kids to continue. From day one at Green Tree, kids have always been excited to come to church on Sunday morning. And I want that to continue. But I also think, you know, I remember way back when I was a kid, having a pretty cool, you know, playground would, would help that. Certainly wouldn't hurt it any. Adam and Eve were handed this playground, and God said, go explore. Go have fun together. And it was perfect. And their relationship with one another was perfect. I know every marriage at Green Tree Community Church is perfect. I know every husband what are y'all chuckling about? I know every husband and wife at Green Tree has, has an idyllic uh, relationship that, that never falters and never struggles, right? Well, mine wouldn't be defined that way. A couple that I'm doing premarital counseling with are kind of giggling at each other right now. Yours is almost perfect, at least right now. But it, give it time, you'll, you'll, you'll catch <laughs> up with us, right? But there, everything in the world is perfect. Why? Because that's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of God we have. He doesn't create a a crummy world. He doesn't create stuff to go wrong. He creates perfection and beauty, and he gives it to us, and he says, all you got to do to keep this thing going forever and ever, just trust me. Just trust that, that if I've given you this good gift, I'll give you every good gift. And what do the husband and the wife do? What do our first parents do? They say, we're not buying it. And they go a different direction. And they experience separation from God. And they experienced what God said, the day you disobey me, the day you do the one thing you can't do, which is don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the day you of that tree, you will die. They ate and they began the process of death. And every one of us has followed them ever since. The rebellion of our first parents leads to a subsequent reality in the world that from that day forward was true. Let me give you some verses out of the Psalms and out of Isaiah this morning. And again, it's a, it's a bit of a, a collection uh, of several verses. But as the psalmist and as the prophet Isaiah look around at their world and they, and they want to define what's going on in terms of humanity, this is, what the, this is the conclusion that they come to. No one's righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. What was the second sin committed in the world? The first one was Adam and Eve sin against God. The second one was what? Cain killed his brother Abel out of jealousy. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruined. And misery in the way of peace, they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. The subsequent reality of this world is that we live in what theologians call a fallen condition, that our very nature has been corrupted, that we no longer long after God, we no longer run after the things that are glorious and beautiful. And have promise in our lives. But rather we seek after things that are destructive and painful. And so hatred and greed and sexual immorality. And the list goes on and on and on. You can add anything to that list you want to. The selfishness that you exhibit in your marriage relationship from time to time. The lack of patience I have with my children as they have grown up. The dishonesty. The the times when we haven't lived for the truth. Times when we thought about ourselves ahead of someone else. The times when we made ourselves our own God and said, I'm going to get what I want, the way I want it, and I don't care who I hurt. You can add anything you want to to that list. It's going to continue to compound and compound, but eventually we end up in the place of sin and death. And What is also true, the subsequent reality of our sin, is that nobody gets out alive, right? There's no one who's broken free. There's no one who can erase the power of sin. There's nobody who can reverse this curse. Everyone who is born dies. It's kind of like the the scary movie. I don't know if you ever watched scary movies when you were a kid, but it's like the scary movies where, you know, you're running away from the bad guy, and the people that are running away from the bad guy are like at a dead sprint, right? And the bad guy's kind of going along. But somehow he beats them to the car, or he he gets ahead of them, and he's in the closet when they open the door. I mean, it's just amazing how you can't get away I don't know if you've seen the Allstate commercial where the teenagers are running in this really scary setting, and they run into a barn to hide, and they bend down to hide, and there's like 50 chainsaws hanging over their head. And one of them says, hey, look, there's a car that's running. Let's go get it and drive off. And the guy next to her goes, are you crazy? Let's go hide in the cemetery. And they all run off and hide in the cemetery, right? They can't get away from the bad guy. I don't care how hard you and I try. We can't get away from sin. We can't get away from the brokenness in our hearts. Just try this week not to say a mean word to anybody. Just try that. Just try for a week to not say something about somebody negative who's not in the room. Just try not to gossip for the week. Just try to keep your temper. In check for the week. I mean, just, I'm I'm not saying big stuff. I'm just saying little stuff. Just try it for five, six days and see how far you get. You can call me by two this afternoon and let me know how it's worked out for you and how maybe you need a Savior too, because I'd probably call you by one (laughs) o'clock. Because we don't get out alive. This is the reality for all of us. But the condition of mankind in Christ Jesus meets the compassion of God. I'm going to take you to John's gospel for just a minute, give you one verse, the very beginning of John's gospel. John the Baptist is out doing his deal, he's baptizing people, he's preaching that the kingdom of God is around the corner, that, that the Messiah is coming, that he's about here, but not quite yet, and then he looks up one day and he sees Jesus walking down the road toward him. And John the Baptist looks up and he says to everybody who will listen to him, behold, look, there he is. Who? The Messiah. How does John define him? The Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. Who gives us an opportunity at a restart. Who actually reintroduces life and holiness and glory and beauty and perfection into a world that is wracked with hatred and evil and death. And the perfect son of God, who is without the stain of sin, who lived the perfect life, in perfect obedience to his Father, if you read through the Gospels, in particular John, you'll, you'll see verses where Jesus says, I, I do only what the Father tells me. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says in place, the Father and I are one. We're, we're indistinguishable. Look at me and you'll see the Father. Well, how, What else does Jesus do all of his life? He loves people perfectly. When people need a rebuke, he gives them a rebuke because that's what they need. When they need to be healed, he touches them and he heals them because that's what they need. When they're hungry and they need food, what does he do? He says, everybody sit down on the lawn. And, the, and one of the groups he fed was five times as big as the group in this room. He says, everybody sit down. we got a fish and a loaf of bread here, but don't worry. We're going to feed everybody. Jesus loved God perfectly, and he loved man perfectly. You get the picture of the hero who's coming to the rescue. Where it is dark and brokenness and sin and death seem to be ruling and reigning. It looks like maybe, just maybe, there's hope. If you're a, a fan of the, the uh, Tolkien's trilogy, the, the Lord of the Rings, in the second book, it looks like the, the armies of the good guys are in big trouble. They're surrounded by these evil armies, and there's this battle raging. And literally, the walls have been broken down, and they're all going to be absolutely annihilated. They're all, they're all going to be slaughtered. But then all of a sudden, uh, Gandalf, who's one of the heroes of the story, appears on the horizon, and, and the morning breaks, and with him, he's he's gone around, and he's collected another, I don't know, 10 or 15,000 uh, cavalry members on horseback, and they come storming down the hill, and they save the day. Maybe, just maybe, God has sent someone to save the day, so you don't have to be trapped in your sin. I don't have to be trapped in the, in the death that this body will one day experience, maybe There's a way out. The compassion of God enters into human history through the person of Jesus Christ. But there's something also that's destined to happen, and that is someone has to experience the wrath of God. Price has to be paid for your sin and for my sin. If God turns a blind eye to the way I've treated people in my life, sometimes he's no God at all. If God doesn't say, Tom, that's wrong, that's evil, What you've done there, that that dishonesty, that anger that you exhibited, that hatred, that spite towards people that I created in my image, if God were to say, well, you know what, I'm just going to turn a blind eye to that and pretend it didn't happen, God would not be a God of justice. But God also is a God of mercy. How do you bring those two together? Well, that's what happens. Verse 45 unfolds. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. Why? Because the wrath of God has shown up. And the perfect son of God is now going to suffer scorn and shame. He's already suffered immense physical torture, but now he becomes the sole focus of God's wrath. I remember as a little kid growing up, at least when we got in trouble, I had a brother and a sister. And if you were the third one in line to get a spanking, mom might, her hand might be just a little tired and it might not be too bad. Or by the time dad got done dealing with the other two, he, he, he might give me a little bit easier way out. There's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. Jesus now has the full attention of his father, but not his father's love, not his father's intimacy, but rather his father's wrath and god curses and as the prophet isaiah says he crushes jesus who is now identified by the collective sin of all of humanity what god the father saw when he looked at jesus in the cross when that darkness descended god saw your sin and he my sin he saw my face he saw your face and he reacted in wrath he said i am now going to punish sin and he poured out his wrath on his son. Jesus exchanges his perfection for our evil. He's no longer identified as one with the Father. But he takes on your identity and my identity as sinner, as rebel, as God-hater, murder, adulterer, all those things that we put on the screen and more. He is stripped of his perfect beauty and he is now clothed in the filth of your unrighteousness and mine. And God says, I will punish. And Jesus went to hell for three hours for you and for me. This is how some of the New Testament authors say it. Paul writes it this way in speaking about Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became identified with sin. Peter says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For Christ also suffered, he says in the next chapter, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Why did Jesus have to suffer the wrath of God? Because your sins and my sins demanded a price if justice was going to be met. If God was going to be both equally merciful and easily just, there had to be a punishment. And so here's Jesus, the Lamb of God, shrouded in darkness for three hours, saying nothing. And it's fascinating to me that that the author, Matthew, and, and the same in the, the other Gospels that record the crucifixion, all of them do, speak of this darkness. And you get the notion of people straining to see what Jesus might say or or could say maybe some of the banter has died down a little bit, and maybe perhaps Jesus is mumbling under his breath, maybe not. But, <coughs> excuse me, there is, there is an oppressiveness about the place. Why? Because God is punishing sin. And for three hours, Jesus hangs in silence and in brokenness. And in verse 46 we read, Now about the ninth hour, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out, In a loud voice, Eli, Eli lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about what Jesus experienced during these three hours. I don't know that we can list all of it. Maybe go back and read Psalm chapter 22, which is a prophetic word about what Jesus would speak when he was on the cross. That that question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is in Psalm chapter 22. But certainly Jesus was experiencing confusion. Where is God? He's always been with me. We've always been together. Eternity is a long time, friends. Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born. He's been God for all of eternity. And that relationship with the Father has been perfect, and now it's severed. And you can only imagine the confusion that Jesus feels. But then as as he becomes sin and he realizes the ugliness, what would happen? Well, what happens when you sin or I sin? And we really stop to think about it for a couple of minutes, right? Shame. Well, think about the shame of all of the sins of the world. Seems to me that that would lead you to a hopelessness, to a sense of there's no way out, to a sense of it's always been this way and it's always going to be this way. I'm not sure everything Jesus suffered in those three hours, but I'm quite certain he did not know how long he had been on the cross. The intensity of this suffering made it seem like that is where he had lived forever and the isolation had to have been excruciating. And that's why Jesus cries out, God's abandoned me, but I don't understand why. This is a question. He's not saying, God, I know why you've forsaken me, because I've become sin. He can't, and he's got, he can't get his mind around this. What's happened to me? I'll say it again. Jesus suffered hell for three hours, the complete separation of God. This world is a broken place. It's a sinful place. But God's spirit still lives in this world, and there's still part of God present in every person's life, or whether you're a believer or not, that's called the common grace of God. God has not abandoned this world. Hell is the complete absence of God's presence on any level whatsoever, and it's all of this and more. I can't do this justice, friends. I can't explain it clear enough what Jesus suffered on the cross because sin's had to be held accountable. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. Actually, I'm going to read it off, off of my notes. I'm trying to read it off the screen, but you can follow along on the screen. To be cursed is to be removed from the presence of God. To be set outside the camp, to be cut off from his benefits. On the cross, Jesus was cursed. That is, he represented the Jewish nation of covenant breakers who were exposed to the curse And took the full measure of the curse on himself. As the Lamb of God, the sin bearer, he was cut off from the presence of God. On the cross, Jesus entered into the experience of forsakenness on our behalf. God turned his back on Jesus and cut him off from all blessing, from all keeping, from all grace, from all peace. God is too holy to even look on iniquity. God the Father turned his back on his son, cursing him to the pit of hell while he hung on the cross. Here was the the sons, and then he quotes from the Apostles' Creed, descent into hell. Here the fury of God raged against him. His scream was the scream of the damned for us. So when John the Baptist looked up one day and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a joyful announcement. What an amazing statement of hope for you and for me. But this, friends, is the cost. This is the price. And Jesus Jesus bore it squarely upon his shoulders and his shoulders alone. And eventually the wrath of God did him in. Verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I like the way John records it in his gospel. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was finished? What was finished was the work of redemption for you and for me. The price had been paid in full. Jesus paid for every sin any person has ever committed. What Jesus did on the cross is sufficient to cover every sin in your life, every sin in my life, every sin of any person who has ever lived. I don't know how you can measure the weight of that, but that's what Jesus did. For me to think that I could out-sin the grace of God is an abominable thought. It scorns the cross of Christ. There's only one application to this message this morning. I like to usually have three or four applications. Say, think about it this way, think about it that way. Maybe apply it this way, maybe apply it that way. There's only one application. The cross is for you and the cross is for me. Will we receive that forgiveness? Will our faith be in Christ? Maybe this morning for you, that's a decision that's been made maybe a long time ago, maybe last week, maybe 20 20 years ago, maybe five years ago, and this is simply a reaffirmation of that faith this morning. As we sat here and stood with our kids and sang, and they waved the palms, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You said amen. That's exactly what I believe. Praise God. Let that sink in deep this morning. Again, we didn't do these last two Sundays to be morbid and to dwell on the suffering of Jesus, but rather to remind us of the glorious gift that he gave and the price that he paid so that we could have forgiveness. And some of you may still be wrestling and wondering about God, And I hope if you take nothing else away from this morning, you will take away the fact that you're so precious to God that he would go to the extreme of dying on a cross for you and suffering wrath that he didn't deserve but was yours alone to bear. But he took it gladly. He took it willingly so that you could be freed. So that actually we could get out of life and live forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work that you completed on the cross. And even as I pray that, it seems so shallow and so superficial. Lord, I know there are not words to explain what you have done. But I thank you that the Gospels tell us that your work was right up and through the cross. <laughs> that you didn't suffer in order that you could be an example people of what it's like for an innocent person to to be victimized, but you actually went to do the work that needed to be done and you saw it through to the end. Father, my, my simple prayer this morning is that everybody in this room would believe that, would trust in that, would see how precious we are to you, that this is the length to which you would go to set right what we have broken in order that you could offer us life. And that we could be a people who are forgiven. Lord Jesus, may that identify us, the forgiven people of Christ. and May we live in the reality of that grace and in that mercy. We pray in your name.